Welcome back to Spiritual Directors Talking About Stuff. Today, I am so excited for this episode because Chris and I sat down with my good friend, Kevin Balbasare, who I know from an organization in Atlanta that is called Renovus, where I offer spiritual direction to the group leaders uh, through this organization. And so that's how Kevin and I met. And the first time that I got to meet Kevin because of uh, my role with this organization we ended up talking for like three hours and we just went really deep on theological stuff. And, and also at the same time, Chris and I had been wanting to have an episode with this podcast around uh, the LGBTQ plus community and uh, faith. And so uh, because of that desire that Chris and I already had, uh, and this great connection that I had with Kevin, I asked him to come on the podcast. Admittedly, I was expecting to do a deep dive on the church and its treatment of the LGBTQ plus community and uh, kind of how that has lived out with Kevin's life. And, and we just went on a rabbit trail that was really, really awesome. Yeah, it was a really great conversation and I'm glad I got to meet Kevin. Um, I didn't know him before, but we really did get to, we talked a lot about his, his faith history and, and some of his faith deconstruction and how he has really come to know God in a much more authentic and deep way now. And that was really great. Yeah, I think that there's this common misconception that you can't be gay and Christian. And Kevin is so, so passionate about his faith and about uh, being part of the kingdom of God and playing an active part in the kingdom of God, really, and uh, teaching people about Jesus. And and so uh, I feel like this conversation just is more evidence to to show that you can be gay and Christian just because of your sexuality. It doesn't exclude you from a life with God. And, uh, um, and Chris, you and I know that we've, we believe that. Uh, but I, I'm just saying that there is that misconception sometimes, especially with a lot of people that I talk to uh, that aren't necessarily affirming of the LGBTQ plus so let's jump right in. I'd love to introduce you to my good friend, Kevin Baldessere. Today, we're so excited to have my friend, Kevin Baldessere, who is a friend of mine here in Atlanta. He is a religion teacher at an elementary school here in Atlanta, and we have so many questions and great things to talk about. Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad to be here. Maggie, you and I, we connected really well when we talked over Zoom, and we ended up talking about all kinds of stuff. I know what was supposed to be like a 30 minute Zoom call ended up being like two and a half hours because we just yes. we we just got along so well. <laughs> Already best friends. And um, I also mentioned that I was thinking about doing a podcast myself. So I was interested in coming on. And also, uh, I'm part of the LGBT community. I'm also a Christian and I'm part of this uh, um, LGBT Christian organization here in Atlanta called Renovus, uh, which you, Maggie, are also a part of. And uh I'm one of the co-leaders there, and uh, so I was asked to come on and talk about these issues, about being Christian and uh, part of the LGBT community. Renovus is like a really cool organization. We'll talk all about that as well, um, and I have the honor of being like the spiritual director on staff for Renovus, and so that's how Kevin and I met, because he is one of the group leaders, and um, and so 
I just get to hang out with all of the cool people at Renovus and just kind of love on them. And um, Kevin, we'd love to hear a little bit about your story and your background, like how you got to uh, where you are in Atlanta as a teacher, um, as an LGBTQ plus person, et cetera. So tell us about you. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, let's see. I did. I'm one of the few people that actually grew up in the Atlanta area. Um, I've lived here my whole life. Uh, I grew up in, you know, kind of typical suburban life. Uh, I have a twin sister. Uh, I grew up church-wise, went to a Methodist church. Uh, and I remember always being really connected to my faith. I've always thought my faith is important to me. I remember the first, I think it was the first thing I bought with my allowance um, was a Bible when I was about 12 or 13 years old. Um, and it was after I had earned some money, I went to a bookstore and I saw a, a Bible. It was like a teen study Bible and I picked it up and I got it. And I remember my dad being so proud of me that that was what I bought for my money. The first time was a Bible. And, uh, yeah, so I've always been really, if someone wants to say fascinated by religion or interested in religion, or even just religion in my life has always been important to me. Um, that that's very, very true. I've always had this just thing about who is God, what is God like, you know, and everything. Uh, but around middle school, my parents just kind of stopped going to church, but that didn't mean I stopped going to church. I would go to my friend's church. If I would spend the night on a Saturday night, they would wake up and go to church the next day and I would go with them. And sometimes it was a Baptist church. Um, sometimes it was a Catholic church. Uh, but um, I really didn't learn about LGBT issues in the church and the, the way that, you know, church can have a problem with LGBT people, uh, except by flicking through the TV and would see like a televangelist on TV. And I think the one who first said anything about it that I remember distinctly was John Hagee. And I remember he would, I don't know if you know who John Hagee is. But yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah, he's one of the big end time rapture people. Yeah, yep. very dispensational rapture guys. Yep. And I remember whenever I saw him on, uh, he was always talking about Israel and how he needed to side with Israel and everything. And he also would almost undeniably uh, or, ine or inevitably, that's a better way to put it, uh, bring up how homosexuals are like the evil people of the world and like, we need to fight against them. And I remember like, and I'm just, you know, I'm a middle school kid going, okay, maybe they're really bad. I don't know. Cause I hadn't really thought about those issues yet. Uh, but it was around high school. Like a lot of times gay people say that they knew they were gay when they're really young. I didn't know until I was like in freshman high school like freshman, sophomore year of high school is when I started really wrestling with it. And it really had nothing to do with how I found men attractive. It was mainly, it was mainly this. I remember there was this guy who was a transfer to our high school and he was in my theater class because I did theater and I was president of drama club at some point. Like I just, that's what I did groundbreaking as Meryl Streep would say. Um, but I remember this, there was this guy there who showed up and he and I clicked really well and we would talk every day. 
And I remember one day he didn't show up to school in theater. And I remember I got, I was told that, oh, he has, he was really sick and he was going to be out for like three weeks. And I remember I was crying because I was going to miss him so much. And in the middle of while I'm just bawling my eyes out, I remember being also going, why am I crying? Like, I don't understand why I'm crying. And I, then I started to realize, oh, I have a crush on this guy. And that was kind of where the penny dropped for me, where I went, oh, okay, that's what this is. Because I had, because growing up in high school, all my friends were basically straight men. And I hadn't had that kind of connection with them where I cried if I didn't see them for, you know, a couple of weeks. But here I was crying over a guy. So it just felt weird. And then I went, oh, okay, I have a crush on this guy. And that was when the penny dropped for me. And I remember that was when I started wrestling with it. I remember showing up at church and going, I knew, you know, I knew about Leviticus, you know, 18 and chapter 20. I remember every single time I'd go to church, I'd pick up a Bible and I would turn there and just kind of hope that that Bible verse was there. And I was kind of like, oh, I just was, is there a Bible out there for me? That doesn't, that doesn't have that. Um, but inevitably that didn't happen, obviously. Uh, but it was just like, I wanted my faith to be important to me. And I knew this was now going to be an issue. And I knew I was going to have to wrestle with this. And by the time I graduated from high school, 9-11 had happened. Because I graduated in 2004. 9-11 happened in you know 2001. Um, a friend of mine uh was shot and killed in high school and and I had been struggling with myself and at some point I just went I, I can't do this religion thing anymore it's just too much pressure it's just too much work religion causes too many problems and self insecurities that I just can't do it anymore so I just kind of said God I'm done with you you know I'm talking to a God supposedly I don't believe in anymore but God I'm done with you uh which maybe deep down, I don't know if I ever really fully went full atheism, but I think I became more like agnostic. Like, I don't know, maybe there is, but if there is, who cares? Uh, so then I went to college where I didn't really know what I wanted to do with, with my life. But it was around those, it was about maybe one or two years later, I started re-looking into religion again. And I started reading you know, books about Buddhism, books about, Hinduism and all these things. And I listened to this guy named Peter Kraft, who's a Roman Catholic philosopher at Boston College. And he gave this lecture series uh, about arguments for God's existence and arguments against God's existence. And it, I was fascinated by it. I had never heard a person talking about arguments for God's existence or arguments against God's existence. And I was like, how, how have I not heard of these before? And he went into such detail and he was very objective about it. Even though he's a Catholic, he was very objective about like, here's, here are the arguments. Here's like the counter arguments. And he kind of left it up to you to be like, okay, well, which one do I think is more compelling or, or whatever? So I, I, I appreciated that aspect of it. It didn't feel like he was preaching. He just felt, he just was telling people here, here's what they are. And I remember sitting there going, you know what, if these are the arguments, I actually find God's existence more compelling than, than not. Uh, I find that the arguments to be more compelling for the position of God than against. 
And it was at that point I kind of started going back to church. And I started going by myself. Like I didn't go with my family or friends. I started going by myself. And at some point, I remember just thinking, you know what? I think I believe this. I think I believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. I believe in God. And I really need to like come forward and just do that. And uh, and I was at a Methodist church. So that was the church I kind of grew up in. And I was more used to that. And when I went forward, I, I could tell that the pastor who didn't know really who I was, he was like, oh, oh, someone actually came forward to, to, to be baptized. And I, and I was like, yeah, you, you asked. And I was like, sure, okay, I'm ready to go. But supposedly you're supposed to like tell the pastor beforehand that this is what you want to do. Um, but he was like, you know what, let's just go ahead and do this. Let's just, let's just do it. So I joined the church and I remember leaving and going, wow, like I feel like I had one of those experiences that you can't really describe that where you really feel different, where you, I felt like everything that I had ever done in my life that was wrong or whatever just went away. And I found myself looking at somebody on the side of the road and I remember going, I don't even know who that guy is, but I love him. Like he's awesome. And I hope good for him. And I remember going, Whoa, am I like crazy? How is this happening? And so it was like, in my head, I'm thinking only God could have done that to, to me. Where were you with your sexuality at this point? Cause it was post high school, post college. At this point I was, I was, yeah, I was dating guys and everything like that. Uh, my, Oh yeah. I forgot to mention this. But I had already come out to everybody. Um, my parents were basically the only people who weren't affirming at this time. And everybody else was fine with it. No one else really had a problem with it. I didn't have a negative reaction. The only people who had a negative reaction were my parents. And uh, and I unfortunately, I was still living with them at the time. Now I became a Christian. And it's like my whole world kind of changed. And so I didn't become a Christian thinking, you know, oh, I need to stop being gay or anything like that. I became a Christian just because I said, hey, I believe this now. And then this kind of experience happened and it kind of just changed how I view the world. And so then I kind of just went deep end, like, okay, I'm reading everything I can about Christianity. You know, uh, I think the first really good book I read was C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And it just like blew my mind. And so then I was like, well, I got to read everything by C.S. Lewis now, because apparently he's awesome. And so I read everything by Lewis. And then after I read Lewis, then I read everything by this Catholic guy named Peter Craves. I read a lot of him. And then I read other people. And then I heard on the radio that there was a degree you could get at this school to basically study Christian apologetics, philosophy of religion. You can get a degree in that. I'm like, I can get a degree in this? Are you serious? I can get a degree in talking about this and reading about this and writing about this? I can do this? So I went to the school. And I graduated uh, with honors from there. I had a 4.0 GPA. Like, by the way, I should mention the college that I went to before this, my GPA was like a 1.2. Then I go here and I have a 4.0. So it's like, oh man, I found the thing that I'm good at. <laughs> so that was really impressive. And, and my, neither one of my parents had graduated from college. So, and, you know, they just wanted me to have a degree. They didn't know I was going to graduate with honors. They were just like, what? What? When did, where did this come from? Um, so anyway, so so I'm trying to make this as short as possible, but I know I could talk about this for days. But basically what happened is about three months after I became a Christian, I had this whole new worldview change. I 
got to the point where I said, okay, well, since this is now what I truly believe, I now have to basically stop dating guys and just reject my sexuality and just say, I'm going to be celibate for the rest of my life. Um, I remember having that just moment where I go, you know what, this is what I'm all about now. So I'm just going to do that. And to all my gay friends at the time, I virtually dropped off the face of the planet. I got rid of my Facebook. I didn't answer texts because I didn't have the ability to say, oh, this is now what has happened to me. So I just didn't want to deal with the conversation that was probably going to happen. So I did that for about 10 years. Uh, so that was 2006. So yeah, 2006 to 2016 is me doing that. And I got seriously into, you know, I got to deep into reformed conservative, you know, evangelical circles. I, I did that. And I will say this though, uh, my pastor, um, he has always been LGBT affirming. So it wasn't the church that I necessarily was at that taught me to do what I did. It was me reading and watching other pastors on the internet or reading books that said, okay, you can't be gay and Christian at the same time. So that was, that was the route I took. So I eventually met this girl while I was at seminary and she knew I was gay. I, I, whenever someone asked me if I was gay, I would say yes. So I kind of treated my homosexuality like alcoholism. I just said, yes, I'm this, but I'm not actively going out and doing it. Mm, you're abstaining. So yes, I'm abstaining. Right. And the way I treated it was my sexuality was like the ocean. The ocean has high tide and low tide. At low tide, you can pretty much kind of enjoy your day and the ocean doesn't really bother you. But at high tide, you got to move your chair. You know, you got you to gotta make adjustments. The ocean's always there. You always kind of see it. You always kind of hear it. But sometimes it's a little more intrusive than you want it to be. So that's kind of how I treated it. And uh, there were days that was really lonely. There were days that were really depressing. And there, But there were other days, I got to be honest, that I didn't think about it too much. Uh, you just get into this mode where you just it's just part of life. Uh, but there were definitely really deep agonizing days of loneliness and despair and not feeling like enough that were, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I felt like I was just stuck. How, how did that feel? Did it, did it kind of feel like, you know, well, this is just how the Christian life is. Some, some parts are, are easy and some parts are really, really hard. And is that how do, did you kind of have to justify it in that way? Or, or how did that, yeah. how that go? Yeah, that's, very, very well summed up. That's just kind of how okay. I saw it. It's, it's, it's the, you know, the prayer in the garden thing, you know, where Jesus says, not my will, but your will kind of deal. So yeah. yeah, I'm in agony. Yeah. I'm in pain. Yeah. I wish this is not happening, but not my will, God, your will, you know, that's, that was how I treated it. So yeah. So that's, that's how I treated it. Um, so I got engaged to this girl because we ended up being best friends in seminary. And there was a point where I thought to myself, if it's going, if I'm ever going to get married, it has to be somebody who knows me really well and knows this part of my life and accepts me and loves me. Like, I can't hide this thing. 
And uh, so we dated for about a year and a half, and then I asked her to marry me. Uh, and then about five months before we were supposed to get married, she said a phrase that really kind of took me aback, which was, I can't wait till the wedding night. Which we were good conservative Christian people who were not having sex before marriage. So, and I knew objectively that that's what would happen. But the way she said it and the way she looked at me, the fact that she was really excited about the fact that this was what was going to happen made me realize, oh no, what have I done? And that I did not feel the same way that she did. And I kind of, I realized that I had self, I kind of just deceived myself into thinking that I could make this work. So I was under a lot of stress and, but basically, and there was a part of me that went like, am I just getting cold feet? Am I like, is this just like what happens with everybody who is about to get married? Um, but basically at the end of the day, it just, Thank the Lord it didn't work out and we separated. So after we separated, my I went to my parents, who, like I said, were not affirming, and we went 10 years of us never mentioning the fact that I'm gay. It, we just it was a conversation we never talked about for 10 years. And I went to them and I told them what had happened. And my dad, who was the main probably non-affirming person kind of nodded his head and he looked at my mom and he looked at me and then he said, so your mom and I kind of figured that's what happened. And we want you to know that if you want to date guys, then we are fine with that. And we bless that. And I remember going like, what, what, it, where was this? You know, I remember thinking that, thinking that in my head. Where was this? When, when were y'all thinking this? And why didn't y'all tell me this earlier? And, but really, it was after talking to them for so long, it, my, what my dad said to me is, after everything that you've been through the past 10 years, and after all the studying and all the church going and all the mission trips you went on, and with this, this thing with, you know, with this girl who you almost married, and then it not working out, you almost got to the finish line and it just fell apart. It like basically clicked with my dad going, okay, this is who my son is. And I now accept him for who he is. And then at that moment, this was kind of like a God coincidence providence thing, if you want to look at it this way. But it was exactly 10 years when I had been baptized and became a Christian is when this day happened. And I remember thinking like, wow, it's exactly 10 years. It's my Christian birthday. And this is happening where my dad is looking me in the eye and saying, it's okay for you to be gay. We'll, we'll accept that. And then that was when I started thinking to myself, okay, well now if my parents accept me, why can't I accept me? And that was the start of my journey of reconciling my faith. Cause I was still a Christian. I still, believed but it, but this was now the process of i'm going to try this now to see if i can reconcile my faith with my sexuality and that's what basically the past five years have been and i feel like i'm in a pretty good place at this point so that's something that we hear a lot in renovus is kind of that journey for 
people to reconcile faith and sexuality, whether it's their sexuality or uh, if they're, you know, or it's if they're an ally, just sexuality in general to reconcile those two. Can you kind of give us a, a definition of what that means to uh, to be on this journey of recon- reconciling faith and sexuality? What does that mean? And what's the end goal? It's, it's a lot of things. I think that, and Maggie, you and I talked about this when we were one-on-one. The way I like to describe it that fits how I see it is I see it like everyone has a theology. Everyone has a view of the world that they have. And their view of the world is like a tapestry with all these strings and threads that are intricately interconnected with each other in all little ways that you can't even possibly imagine. And it takes a while to form. And once you do, you kind of like, look at how beautiful this is. And then one day you're walking by it and you notice a piece of thread is like popping out. And you have to decide. And then you pull on it. You pull on it. And what happens is you see it pulling on other strings. And you know if you pull it out, the other strings are going to be pulled out too. And you're going to have to kind of start over. And so you have to make that decision. Am I going to pull this string out and possibly start over? And it's going to take a while to put these things back together. And it's not going to look the same as it did before. Or are we going to ignore it and just kind of keep it like it is, knowing that it's there, but just kind of keep it like it is because we don't want to go through the journey. And I think that's the point where I said, all right, I'm going to pull on this and it's just going to take time. And so reconciling your sexuality with your faith is not a one step. Okay, I'm cool with being gay and being Christian now. It if you're serious about your faith, it takes time and it takes talking to other people, it takes prayer, it takes reflecting on new ways of thinking about the Bible, new ways of thinking about God and letting yourself go to those areas that you didn't want to take yourself before. It takes all those things. And also it takes as I think is a very biblical view a church that gathers around you and speaks truth to you about who you are, who God is. So you can fight the other voices in your head. that are going, you're going down the wrong path. You shouldn't be doing this. You have to have people around you that encourage you on in your walk as well. So I think it takes all those things. It's not, you can't do it by yourself and nor should you, you shouldn't be expected to do it by yourself either. Mm. That's a really great metaphor for, you know, what, we call deconstruction, you know, it can be reconciling your faith with any number of things. Like, you know, I'm, I'm having to reconcile my faith with what it also means to be an American or reconciling my faith with really the way of Jesus, which a lot of Western American Christianity does not look at all like the way of Jesus, you know? So reconciling, (laughs) reconciling your faith with your sexuality is, is another aspect of, of that process what a yeah. great uh i like that tapestry metaphor yeah you have to rethink a lot and you have to rethink and it's hard to do that because you we, we want to be and like i said i got my degree in apologetics and philosophy like i want to be right <laughs> okay i love being right okay as do all of us we love being right about things and but just reconcile your sexuality with your faith. If they weren't reconciled, you now have to admit, maybe I'm wrong and go down that route 
of listening to people who disagreed with you and going, okay, let me really listen to what they have to say and see if I can see their point of view of is not being crazy or irrational or, you know, something that's evil or bad. And that's, that's hard to do. It takes, you know, humility and willing to listen to somebody else. And it's scary. Stepping out is scary. Um, but if that's what you want to do, that's what, that's what you need to do. Um, you said that there were a lot of questions that you uh, had that you had to kind of allow yourself to go toward like reshaping your image of God and reshaping a lot of just a lot of theology that you have. Um, can you talk a little bit about that journey around your how you view God and how you understand God to be? How that was, you know, growing up in the Methodist church to where you are now uh, with God? Yeah. So, and by the way, I don't want to disparage the Methodist Church, even though right now the Methodist Church official stance is, you know, we don't affirm uh, any type of relationship that's other than a man and a woman in marriage. But uh, there's also a lot of Methodist pastors out there who are firmly against that. It's basically 50 50 in, in the Methodist well, Church. And, in, and the American Methodist Church tends to be overwhelmingly affirming. And by affirming, we mean that uh, if an affirming person is someone that believes that God loves the person, period, you know, it's not even though they're gay or, um, you know, love the sinner, but hate the sin. Like that is not an affirming stance, but it is God loves you, period, end bracket, you know. And so that's Mm -hmm. that's what we mean when we say affirming. It's there is no even though. No qualif- no qualifiers. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that gets the Methodist church in trouble is the way they do communion. Uh, communion. Um, what they do is they stand up and they say, listen, this is not United Methodist table. This is the Lord's table. And so all are welcome, no matter your denomination. And they even go on to say, or even your belief. You are welcome here. This is the Lord's table. Mm-hmm. Jesus welcomes everyone who comes. And for a lot of people, that's not cool. Like you need to believe in this church's doctrine and statement about this, about God or whatever. And we Methodists, we're just kind of like, hey, this is Jesus offering himself to you. And if you want to come and take Jesus, then Jesus, that's what he's here for. Yeah, which I was going to say what you just said about communion in the Methodist church is a very beautiful image of who Jesus is. I, I, that And people say, why don't you just get out of the Methodist church if they're not? A, and I'm like, but I love the Methodist church because they do have this affirming bent toward them of wanting to do the right thing. And I, I believe that that will change one day. Like, I, re- I really believe that. So you either go, well, I believe they'll change because I love them and one day they'll get better. Or you go, you know what? I'm tired of waiting. I'm going to do something else. And as of right now, I'm just like, I think they'll get better. <laughs> I think one day, you know, they're working on it. Uh, so I'm, I have hope in Jesus. So I'm hoping that one day Jesus will show them the light and they'll go there. So anyway, so my image of God. So because I, like I used to be super Calvinistic reformed, like following John Piper and, you know, those guys. Yeah. Um, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul. Like those guys, I, and 
really the, the emphasis was God is your enemy and you have to reconcile yourself to God so that God doesn't get you. And that was a, that was, that was what the whole Christian faith was to them is that's why Jesus came because, Hey, God is holy and you're not. And that means you're an enemy of God. And God means God is not happy with you. And I have heard Preachers like that say, God hates evil doers. It says that in the Psalms. God hates evil doers. Yahweh is an enemy to evil doers, and he hates them. So if God hates you, you got to be reconciled to him. Otherwise, he's going to get you. Because what do you do when you hate somebody? You get them. So that was a big issue for me to now that has changed. And now I don't see God as, as my enemy. The, the, the real enemy in this world is sin, meaning the breakdown of society, the breakdown between people, relationships, envy, jealousy, those type of things. And death. Death is also the big enemy in this world. Jesus is the savior of the world of those two things. So the two things in the world that are the enemy of me, it's not God. God is not my enemy. It's its everything that breaks down and causes disorder and chaos and hatred and greed and jealousy. Those are, those are the enemies. And death is the enemy. Jesus, by dying and rising again, has now conquered those enemies. In my in myself, in my enemies, in the people who I see are wrong, he's, he's dealt with it. So... God is not this being who I have to be afraid of to come to and to talk to and to commune with about my issues or problems or things I'm dealing with or the doubts that I have. God is the savior of all those things. And he's my rock of who I really trust will, there will, there will be a happy ending is, is how I view God. Not because I mean, in the circles that I grew up, even if someone said they were a Christian and they passed away, you could always think, well, maybe they really weren't. Maybe they, you know, maybe they really didn't believe in Jesus. They could say they did, but how would you really know? You don't really know. And they emphasize so much about how few people are going to make it to heaven that that's why they're like, so gung-ho about like, you have to be reconciled to God and you have to be, and even once supposedly you're reconciled to God, are you really, are you really reconciled to God? How do you know if you're really reconciled to God? And it's this whole introspection thing of I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And that I think is very corrosive and destructive. Now I view it that way. <laughs> I didn't used to view it that way before. I'm like, oh, this is just how the Christian life is. But now I view that as, okay. So like every day is this servile fear of, oh my gosh, what if I mess up? Am I really a Christian? Does God really love me? Particularly in a Calvinist circle where, you know, God just picks and chooses whoever he wants to be saved without any type of real reason, except eh, I want to glorify myself. So I pick you. Not for any reason. It's just for, it's just because I want to glorify myself. And okay. So what, what does that leave of God's love for me or God's love for my enemy or God's love for someone who, is coming against me. Um, 
So anyway, so that that's one big thing that's changed is I don't see God as my enemy now. God is my friend. God is my savior. And Jesus, bringing it down to Jesus now, Jesus is the perfect embodiment of what God is like. And he's not revenge. He's not vengeful. He's not filled with hatred. He speaks against the powers that do burden people down. But he also humbly uh, prays and loves people who hate him. And he wants everybody to embrace the love that God has for them. And that's how I now picture who God is. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus is, is how I view God. Now, I should have viewed him that way anyway, because that's what I've always believed. But it, there was all this other stuff that kind of distracted me from that being the central story. And then really bringing that down into my heart and saying, oh, this is what God is like. And that, and end of story, like stop, full stop, this is God. And all the other stuff about God hating his enemies and all that, that's kind of like a human view of when people are expressing their anger towards somebody else and they think they're on God's side. Okay, yeah, of course God hates them. But then Jesus comes along and says, no, God loves your enemies too. God loves those who persecute you and hate you and talk evil to about you. And uh, if you really want to be like God, you have to love them too. <laughs> so um, that's really what God's like. He doesn't hate your enemies. He loves your enemies. And I think sometimes the evangelical church doesn't just needs to read that last little section of Matthew 5. Just like read that like every day, 10 times and just be like, do you realize how radical Jesus is being right here? Like when he says... You know, even tax collectors love other tax collectors. When he says that, you know, tax collectors, as you guys know, were seen as like the most trade, you know, they were traitors to Israel. They were co-opting with the Romans and just like rejecting God. And so they were seen as like the worst people. And Jesus kind of comes along and says, you know, tax collectors are really not that much different than you guys. You think you're better than tax collectors, but you're not. And if you really want to be, if you really want to be different than tax collectors, guess what you have to do? Love tax collectors. So the thing that you go, ugh, not those people. They're awful. They're terrible. Jesus goes, okay, so you're not being any different than a tax collector. So he, I love how Jesus always like kind of pigeonholes people to where he's like, yeah, okay, you have this belief. That's, that's fine. But if you keep doing that, you're really, you're not really doing anything that's special. But if you love them, which is the thing you don't want to do, you'll actually be different than them. So do you want to be different than a tax collector? Yes. Okay, well then go love one. It's just like this great thing where you have to go, oh, I don't want to, but I need to, you know? So yeah. I just That's why I love about Jesus is that Jesus is always challenging, but he's also very provocative. But he, I also know that when he speaks, he's doing it with a humility and a love where he understands the human condition of how and that's why he, Jesus always has his eyes on us and going, okay, this is where you need to go. It's so clear that this uh, renewal of your sense of who God is has really impacted your like personhood very much. So can you talk a little bit about how you've seen transformation in yourself just by entering into a relationship with God? I, at this point in my life, my Christian faith is so integral to who I am as a person 
I identify, yes, I identify myself as being gay, but I, my, my faith in, in, in God and in Jesus is so central to who I am that I can't imagine. I, I remember I was listening to, I was listening, I was listening to some auto audio book and I can't remember what book it was, but I remember it was talking about, it was, it was trying to argue for um, why someone should be a Christian or rethink something. And, you know, many times you'll hear people say something like, well, Christians are so hypocritical and they're so, you know, they don't really do what they're supposed to do and all these things. And one thing, the, I forgot who, who, who uh, it's killing me. I don't know who it was, but the, the quote said something to the effect of, if you think I'm bad now, imagine if I wasn't a Christian, right? The idea is like, if I didn't have my faith, I would be even worse than you think I am now. So that's kind of how I view, I view myself as like, listen, I'm not a perfect person. I'm a very fallen, like I can really mess up and be in, insensitive. I can say things that can hurt people's feelings and, you know, all of that. I can be very hypocritical, but that's kind of what I want to say is like, you guys don't understand. Like if I don't have my Christian faith, like I would just not care. Uh, so like, that's how integral it is to me. I know for a lot of people, they're like, well, I care and I'm not a Christian. I'm like, I know that just makes me a very messed up person that I need. <laughs> that, like, like I really do need Jesus to be like, all right, Kevin, you, let's focus on you know doing the right thing today. Let's focus on hope and joy and peace and love. And, you know, instead of me being like, but what about me? Okay. Yeah. About you, but let's you focus on love, joy, peace. And let's focus on those things. Um, so that, so that's the impact that my faith has had on me and that um, it's very important to me. And I think it's important for a lot of people. And I think it, particularly with the LGBT people, I can't count the number of people who I run into who are LGBT and they find out that I'm a Christian, that they, that they, they say, oh, I grew up in a Christian home, but now I don't believe anymore because of this. And, but they're, but most of the time I get very positive feedback. Most of the time I get like, it's great that you have this. I'm looking to somehow reconcile my faith, my sexuality. But right now I just don't know how to do that. Um, sometimes I will get negative feedback. Like how can you possibly side with these Christian people who believe this? And, and you know, what I say is like, look, I'm, if there's a person in the world that knows that religion can do bad things to you, it's Jesus. Like it's religion people that, got Jesus arrested and ultimately on the cross. So like Jesus is not there saying, yeah, religion's great. You know, like it always makes people better. Like Jesus is very much like, oh yeah, look, your religion's making you into a worse person. So, so one of the reasons why I believe in Jesus is because I know religion can be very destructive and Jesus totally agrees with that. So that's not an argument against religion if Jesus is there to say, yeah, Jesus, Jesus is there being killed by religious people. And, um, to realize that religion is a religion can be a source of extreme evil and bigotry and, uh, exclusivity where you lead out, you leave out the other who's not like you. Um, and that, that's, that's just part of our, human history that's not just religion that's every society these people are not like us so we're going to reject them 
And that's what I think the cross is all about. It's about the, the, we look at the people who are different than us and we reject them. And we go, if we just got rid of these people, then the world would be great. I remember uh, one of my favorite TV shows is South Park. <laughs> and they had a great episode. One of my, it's one of my favorite episodes of all time. It's, it's, I think it's called Oh God. And it's, about, it's around the time where Richard Dawkins came out with his book, The God Delusion. Now, the creators of South Park are not Christians. But this book, The God Delusion, was by Richard Dawkins. And it, you know, it was number one bestseller for weeks. And it was all about how dumb religion is and how evil religion is and how the world would be better if everybody was atheists and all this stuff. And the creators of South Park, who are not religious, made this whole made this two-part series about Cartman going into the future where everybody's an atheist. There's no religion anymore. But there's all these sects of atheists and they're all at war with each other. And about how our our and they're and when they die when they're about to be dead because they're at war with each other, they get shot, they get they go, oh science, and then they blow up. And it's just fantastic. It's great. And they, and I listened to the commentary about it and they're like, look, I'm not, we're not religious, but the idea that humans are just going to be great moral people if religion went away, is a mm. very naive view of how humans actually work. Right. And so if you think atheism is the, you know, the end all be all, that's just going to make everyone better. You're wrong. Yeah. And I think that's a just new part religion. of religion. Yeah. Right. It's, it's just, right. <laughs> exactly. It just becomes a whole new religion and using your, view of the world to oh well they have a different view so i'm going to go after them and uh i that's one of the reasons why i love south park because they're <laughs> they, they might they might be crude but they're insightful they're very insightful so yes yes now i'm i'm sure that um as part of reconciling your faith and your sexuality you've had to wrestle with the bible and so i'm curious what your view is now on the Bible and, and, you know, I'm, you know, there's lots of passages that, you know, there, we call clobber passages that are just like, here's what it says, you know, beat you over the head with it. But so what is your position now on the Bible? Yeah. So that's, that's a great question because I think that a lot of the ways that gay Christians want to come at the Bible is to go to those clobber passages, like in Leviticus, like in first Corinthians, like in first Timothy, like in Romans, and say, well, this is not really talking about homosexuality in the way that we understand homosexuality today, which, by the way, I agree with. But I almost, I almost want to not go there first and take a step back and talk about the Bible as a whole and talk about what is the Bible there for rather than what does the Bible specifically say about this one thing in this one particular passage over here and over here and over here. What I want to do is... I want to just take a big step back and say, okay, what is the Bible? What do we mean if we say the Bible is inspired? What do we mean when we say that uh, the Bible, God uses the Bible to speak to us? And I think that three people that have had the biggest impact on me in changing my view of the Bible is uh, John Walton who released a series of books called Lost World. He's an Old Testament scholar. Uh, also, Tim Mackey, who's part of the Bible Project. Uh, and 
who else? Oh, uh, Peter Enns. Peter Enns, who has a podcast called uh, The Bible for Normal People, which maybe you've mentioned before or had him on or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Have him on, but we, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we yet. love Pete Enns on this podcast. The yeah. uh, The Bible Tells Me So, so and uh, Sin of Certainty are like two of my favorites. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, I have both of those books and I, yeah, I've read them both and I love them because what, and Peter, Peter Enns, John Walton and Tim Mackey, they really were able to clearly say, listen, the Bible is an ancient text. And they emphasize that over and over and over again, because what evangelical, particularly evangelical Americans do, because I don't know the context of other cultures, but I do know evangelical American circles come to the Bible and we, we don't check our own prejudices and our own thoughts at the door and realize this text is really old, written in a language that's not ours, written to people that are not us, written to people who don't have the same concerns that we do. You know, there's no idea of evolution. There's no idea of human rights in the Bible. There's no idea of democracy. You know, all these ideas that we think are great and amazing. Sorry, guys, not in the Bible. And we just assume that they're there and they're not. And, uh, you know, one of the things this made me do is realize like this text, it may say some things that shock me and made me go like, what, what is going on here? But if I traveled to Spain today, to a country that I've never been to, I'm going to be shocked by some of the things I'm going to see over there. There's going to be a little bit of culture shock. Sorry. Like it's just going to be there. Now, is it going to be as dramatic as going back 3,000 years ago? Obviously not. But I will still say, oh, they do things a little different here than they do in America when it comes to this, you know, norm or whatever it is. And so now I've kind of seen the Bible as when something shocks me or I go, I don't necessarily agree with that. I'm not bothered by it because I know the context in which it was written. And to say, so so let's just say for the sake of argument, just to say for the sake of argument, that when Paul talks about uh, homosexuality in Romans 1, if that's what you really think he's talking about, let's just assume that that is what he's talking about and that he condemns that. That our English translation of a text that we don't even have the original manuscript right. of that what he said was actually homosexuals. <laughs> right. Let's, let, I don't agree right. with that, but let's just for the sake of argument say, okay, I, I affirm your argument. Let's just for the sake of argument do that. I am not convinced that if Paul lived in our time, in our culture, where we now know that there are truly LGBT people that he wouldn't say to himself, and because he lived in a culture that didn't know that, that he wouldn't say, oh, okay, I didn't know that. So of course, if that's who you're naturally attracted to, and you live in a culture where now marriage is not about a man, you know, subjecting a woman and, 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 and you know, about land and trading things and all that stuff. Now it's about like, oh, you're going to be with the person you love. That's what marriage is in our country, in our culture. You know, when people say they believe in a biblical view of marriage, I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> if you live in America, you do not have a biblical view of marriage. 
Like try and walk up to a father on the day you meet a daughter and go, I'm marrying her. Like try and do that. And it's just mm-hmm. like, no, that's not good. And then the father says, okay, you have to mm-hmm. work for me for seven years, but okay, I'm going to do this. I'm yeah. referencing the Jacob story. <laughs> but so, uh, so you, so a modern evangelical Americans do not have a biblical view of marriage because we live in a culture that is not the biblical world. We, we live in modern 21st century America. So what I want to ask the question is, if Paul was living in our culture, in our time, with the things that we now know, what side would he be on? Now, no one can know for sure what side he would be on. But if you think that Paul is a reasonable, rational person who would have it sit down and have a conversation with you, which I do, then I think that that question, I, I think it's fully possible that Paul could be like, okay. Yeah, if two people are in love with each other and that's like now how marriage is viewed, mm-hmm. I, I mean, then sure. Why mm-hmm. not? So so I like to back up and just go, wait, wait, hold on a second. Let's really think about this. In the culture they were in and in the culture we are now, can we say that if they were to come into a time get into a time machine and come to our culture and see the way th- the way things are, they might go, Oh, well, why don't you just let them get married? This is, mm-hmm. why not just do that? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of how I view it. Uh, the, you know, another thing that really popped out to me is, you know, when you say the Bible is God's word and you translate that to mean everything that it says is true. Uh, to me, you have a really big issue when it comes to science and when it comes to how the world is, because what, Tim Mackey showed me is watching his lectures on this is that Genesis one, you know, we like to focus on how long did it take for God to create the universe? Well, their view of the universe itself is different than how we view it. We're focused on evolution. And and now I read and go, guys, this is not about evolution. This is about how they viewed the sky. You know, they, the, the ancient Israelites believed that the big blue thing above us is a giant, solid dome that's holding up the blue thing is water and there's you know little windows in it and sometimes the windows open up and that's where rain comes from (laughs) like that's what that's what it means when it says god separated the waters from above from the waters below guys that's not right we know that's not right Mm -hmm. but that's what the ancient near east people believed and you can't really blame them for thinking that because to them what else is blue other than water (laughs) And yeah. <laughs> if rain is falling from the sky, there must be water up there. So yeah, that's water. And yeah, it just makes sense. That's what how they saw the world. They didn't know that it's light reflecting from the sun in particles when it hits our atmosphere. They didn't know that. So the I mean, if you want to say this, the Bible is wrong there, then that's that's what it is. It's wrong there. Now, I don't particularly like to say that i like usually say like well this is how, what how what the ancient people thought right right mm-hmm. now you but then you say well were they right or were they wrong okay they were wrong there is no solid dome that's holding up water okay so so now you have to like read so then i have to rethink like okay well i can't see the bible as being true about every single thing that it says so now you can kind of dive into okay what about homosexuality so one of the things that as Maggie, as you know, and Chris, as you probably know too, 
reading uh, Peter N's book, How the Bible Actually Works, has a great insight about the Bible, which is that the Bible is there to teach us wisdom. It's not there to teach us, or it's not, it's not a rule book that is supposed to say every mm-hmm. single little thing, this is how you're supposed to live your life. Because it will often uh, either directly contradict itself, it will have a conversation between itself about what God is like. So that's one of the things that, let me just give an example of this. One of my favorite examples of this is in 1 Samuel, God, it says, Yahweh incited David to take a census, which, by the way, God had commanded David not to do. But in this passage, God actually incites David to take a census, and then David takes a census, and then God punishes him for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, That happens in first, I think it's 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel. It's one of those two. But either way, it happens. And uh, for Chronicles is basically a retelling of you know the history mm-hmm. of the Bible up to that point. And Chronicles written you know hundreds of years after, but it's trying to sum everything up. And when it gets to that passage, it says, it doesn't say Yahweh incited David. It says Satan incited David. So this author looks at that passage and goes, no, <laughs> God didn't do that. That's what he does. He says, God didn't do that. This is an author of the Bible who we consider is inspired, looks back at what another author of the Bible said and goes, no, I disagree. God didn't do that. Yeah. Now, once you, now here's the thing. When you're in conservative evangelical circles, they have to harmonize those two things. And what they say is, well, God did do it, but he used Satan to incite him. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, and okay, punished him for it. and then punish him, for it. <laughs> which by the way, yeah, doesn't make it any better. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, even if you take that view, you're like, but God's still mm-hmm. the one who's still doing it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would believe that. I'd be like, okay, yeah, that's how you harmonize these passages. <laughs> Peter Enns comes along and goes, yeah, the guy just disagrees with him. Mm-hmm. The writer of Chronicles disagrees with the writer of Samuel. Because he views God as different. God doesn't incite people to do wrong. Mm-hmm. So you have an issue. If you are a evangelical conservative Christian who thinks the Bible never contradicts itself or never says anything they're wrong, then you have to harmonize all these issues. And that, by the way, that's one example of many of mm-hmm. the Bible talking, having this conversation with itself about what God is like, what he really wants. And that's why I think now the I look at the Bible as teaching us wisdom, where we can we can look at our day and age, see the issues, see the problems, and we have to make the tough decisions about what's best for ourselves and our neighbor and the world around us. So before I get into, and this is the long road going back to the other clobber passages, um, that's just the point, is that even if you grant that this is the these texts are about homosexuality period across the board that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to agree with it mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to go okay well the bible says it and we don't have to talk about nuance or when it was written or why it was written we just oh it says it i believe it the bible says you know have wisdom and think about it and meditate mm-hmm. on it and what's really best for people and one of my favorite passages in the whole bible is when uh you know, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath 
and people are really mad about this. And he's like, um, if your pet falls into a, into a, a ditch on the Sabbath, are you going to reach in and pull it out? Okay. So if you are, then I can't heal a guy on the Sabbath. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And the idea is like, they're using this, these laws of don't do this to burden people down and to not actually help. And so that's wisdom. That's like, of course, I love how Jesus is like, of, co- of course, you're not going to help somebody on the Sabbath because God says don't work. Really? That's your thing? You're going to die on this hill, lovely. Well, I can't work. It's the Sabbath. And God says, don't work. And if I help somebody that's working, I'm, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that's that was a very freeing moment for me. And I think probably for a lot of people where you just go, oh, it's like a Facebook status of a, your relationship. Like it's complicated. <laughs> you know, your, yeah. your relationship to the Bible is supposed to be complicated. You're supposed to wrestle with it. It's supposed to bother you. And it's supposed to make you go, hmm, I think actually this is the better way or the more Jesus way or the more humble way or the more loving way. And um, yeah, that that's just what I think about. That's my relationship to the Bible now. I still believe God uses the Bible, but I but I see it as a more engaging book rather than a rule book that tells me what mm-hmm. I can and cannot do and what I should believe about the world around me. Cause I, I, I believe in modern science. I believe the earth goes around the sun. I believe that the big blue thing is not a dome. I believe that the earth is not on pillars. You know, I, I believe these things. So that means I disagree with what the Bible says about these things. So, and by the way, most conservative evangelicals do, but they don't realize it. They don't realize that they disagree with the Bible on these issues. And so if you start bringing that up to them, that's when you start to see the shaking going on. Because, oh man, <laughs> how do I do Let's forget the homosexuality issue. Let's just talk about the world and science in general. Well, and they're, it's like they're going and, back. They're going to trim off the little piece of thread that's sticking out instead of pull on it. Well, they have the decision. They can trim it off to make it look perfect or they can pull it and see what God does. Right, exactly. Yeah. And and it's and, and by the way, and I I know what that feels like. It's hard to do. It's yeah. not easy. Uh, you know, it, it's really tough to do. It takes a lot of humility and courage. You know, one of my favorite. Yeah, this is gonna be maybe a little bit of a side. One one of my favorite movies is of recent memory is called Silence. Oh, what a great movie! It's fantastic. Uh, yes. By um, Martin Scorsese. By the way, I'm a movie nerd anyway. And it's about these two Catholic priests who hear about another Catholic priest in, in Japan who supposedly he apostatized. And, you know, there's huge persecutions going on in Japan. So these two priests go over. They're trying to, like, get the Christians together. And then and, and people, are being, people are being tortured and slaughtered for their Christian faith. And this the, the main character... The, the main priest, he's going there going like, he's strong in his faith. And he's going to stand firm against these people who are persecuting the church. But then what they realize in the movie is, oh, the Japanese have done their homework. And they know what Christianity says. They know what Christianity is. And what they realize is that what they do is instead of perse- instead of like hurting the priest and saying, deny the faith, they start hurting the members of their church. And saying, if you don't deny the faith, we're going to continue torturing your people. Because you're the ones that have the faith. And if you deny it, then they'll be more likely to deny it too. 
And the whole movie is this guy who's like, well, I'm, I'm with Jesus and I'm never going to deny like, but he's also torn because he loves these people and he, he, he doesn't want them to be hurt and tortured. And they're, you know, spoiler alert, by the way, there comes, there comes a moment where he does deny the faith. He does say he's not a Christian anymore. He apostatizes. He steps on a icon of Jesus. And the reason why the movie is called Silence is because he doesn't hear God's voice the entire movie when he's praying. He's praying for God to talk to him. He's praying for God to show him direction. And God doesn't say anything. But right at the moment before he steps on the, on the icon, he hears a voice. And it says, go ahead and step. I know who you are. And I, I, I bore the burden for you. And so I can bear this burden as well. So step. So he steps on it. And it's it's only after that that he starts to hear God's voice. And the idea is he was so filled with pride of look how right I am. That what he thought was he wanted to be so Christ-like that it actually made him less Christ-like. And it's only when he denied his faith, which was the most painful thing he could do because it was the thing that meant the most to him. That's when he became most Christ-like. He was willing to put that to death for somebody else. And so it's like this weird paradox of he actually became the most Jesus-like when he denied his faith. Mm -hmm. And then there was resurrection Mm -hmm. on the other end. So some Christians watch that movie and they're like, this is like anti-Christian. And I'm like, it's one of the most positive Christian movies I've ever seen. It's so good. Highly recommend seeing it, but don't watch it if you have a queasy stomach because it gets pretty intense and it's Martin Scorsese. So <laughs> it can, it can, it's, it's, it's the guy who made Goodfellas, okay? So just realize what you're dealing with. Uh, but it's one of my favorite spiritual movies of all time. It's great. I'm actually like tearing up thinking about it because of how beautiful yeah. It, it is. Yeah, so. I agree. So, so yeah. I think when it comes to Christians, uh, and the reason why I mentioned that for a lot of Christians like that's what they need to do they want to be right so bad that one of the things they need to do is go is is humble themselves and go maybe i've been wrong and that's hard to do it's hard to do and and one thing i would want to say to the lgbt particularly christian community as i said earlier you know we you know a lot of times i think that there's a lot of things that can be changed about the evangelical conservative world, but that's not the world I live in anymore. And so I want to focus on the the church that I'm a part of, which is affirming LGBT people. And I, this might be offensive to some people, but what I want to say is, Hey, if you think your enemy is conservative evangelical Christians, I don't blame you for thinking that, but Jesus tells us to love our enemy. And Jesus tells us to pray for our enemy. And Jesus tells us to forgive our enemy. And Jesus died for your enemy. And so I also want to say to my LGBT people, if we really want to be different than our conservative evangelical people, then we have to love conservative evangelical people. And that's hard to do. It's really hard to do. Doesn't mean we can't call them out for stuff. Doesn't mean we can't say, I think you're wrong here and here's why. But it also means that Jesus calls us to still humble ourselves and to do good to those who hate us and to do good to those who persecute us. And that's, that's hard to do. It's really, really hard to do. Um, but that's why I love Jesus because he 
challenges me to be better than I am. Um, and then he loves me when I'm not. And that's why I love him. And so, yeah. So I think that that's important for us to hear. It's easy for us to, to point the, you know, it's, we always say like, oh, look, you know, evangelical Christians, they cast the first stone. I'm like, listen, we, we, we cast stones all the time in the LGBT community. You know, I've, I've always said, if you want to feel judged, you don't have to go into a church, go into a gay bar. I mean, <laughs> you will be judged when you walk in there. <laughs> Sorry, it's just the way it is. Um, so judging is not just for conservative Christians. We have to humble ourselves and realize we, we do this too. It's just part of human nature and we humble ourselves. So I, by the way, I'm no better. I'm not saying I'm great. I, every day I have to go, Oh, I really messed up when I, when I said or did that. So. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's, it's really good. Important that you, in, in so many words, you have highlighted the difference between what it means to be Christ-like and what it means to be biblical. Mm-hmm. Um, because being Christ-like um, oftentimes doesn't look very biblical and you know the evangelical christian side of the world will pride themselves on being biblical and they're being very unchristlike in being biblical and so i mean isn't that what the religious leaders of jesus today were exactly i mean exactly i mean they were thinking like listen we're we're spitting out bible verses we're telling you this we're telling you that and he's like yeah but are you really loving that person the spirit of the law is what you're completely missing Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That's, that's very, very important. Very, very important. And, uh, yeah, Jesus comes along and he just changes the whole paradigm and, uh, challenges us to think differently about almost every issue that we come up against. And that's, once again, I, I'm sorry. I, that's one of the reasons why I love Jesus. He just continually every single day, makes me look at something and go, how do you really think about this? And how do you really think about this person? And what do you hope about this person? And that's what repentance is. That's, you know, metanoia. Change your way of seeing the world. Change your mindset. Um, it doesn't mean feel sorry for your sins. No. Uh, I remember one of my favorite, and by the way, I can quote C.S. Lewis all day because I used to just submerge myself in everything that he wrote. And one of the things that has stayed with me is his quote about prayer which is when you wake up in the morning, you feel a thousand different animals and your thoughts just jump on you and say, pay attention to me. And he says, what prayer is, is waking up and taking all those voices, and pushing them aside and listening to a quieter but stronger voice inside of you. And that's what prayer is all about. And that's why it starts there. So the spiritual life starts when you wake up. And what am I going to focus on first? Not all the little things that are jumping at me right now. I'm going to focus on the still small voice that's speaking truth and love and reconciliation to me. And I start with that. And then I move on with the rest of my day and deal with the other animals. And I think that's, that's been important to me even now, as even though Lewis would definitely disagree with where I am right now. Uh, I still find spiritual wisdom in that. that that's, that's where my day needs to begin. 